0: Hey, Pastor John here, welcoming you to our broadcast. In today's passage, we ask the question, what would a world without joy look like? We're in part four of Catching the Wind, our study in Ecclesiastes. Let's join the service and see what the answer is. My, my, my lovely wife, thank <laughs> you. We're going to be in verses 16 of chapter 3 uh, through verse Six of chapter 4. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness, and in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there's a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart, with regard to the children of man— that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beast, for all is vanity. All go to one place, all are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes downward into the earth? So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity, striving after the wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after the wind. The word of the Lord, brothers and sisters. I got to be honest with you, when, when I started this, you know, I've been looking at Ecclesiastes for a long time and really had to kind of, stir myself up to, to go through it, uh, but I had, I had no idea what impact it would have on me personally. Um, and I, I, as I work my way through this book, um, what I want to share with you is this is about us. This book is about us. Uh, and and I, hope, I hope that you're going to see that uh, as we go through this morning's passage. Because as Solomon views this world, um, he views it the way it is. I mean, he views it exactly the way it is. Now we all know it's apart from God, and the more you look at it through Solomon's eyes, the more hopeless it gets. And if we're not careful, if if we're not careful, not to look at it through Solomon's eyes, it can be devastating. I'm here today to tell you that the world will rob you of your joy. You know, if we're supposed to have peace with Jesus Christ, we're supposed to have joy in who he is, and we look too closely at the world and allow the world to be our measure of how we experience peace and joy, it's going to rob us of both. So last time we were in Ecclesiastes, we went through the first half of chapter 3, and we found out that God is a sovereign master over all of time, and he does everything that he does to inspire all. In other words, to bring glory to himself. Now, this explains why Solomon is struggling, because he has drifted away from the Father. The only purpose in the universe if the only purpose in the universe is to bring glory to God and Solomon is turned away from God, well, he no longer has any meaning or purpose in life. He's just getting by day to day. One thing that had dawned on Solomon, though, since, since we can't change the past, and since apparently we can't change the future, and we don't know what the future holds, even though, even though there's something inside of us that says that there's something bigger, there's something transcendent, I want you to hold on to that word. Because that's what our relationship with Christ is all about, transcendence. What does it mean? It means that there's something beyond this, that there's something that we live for, something eternal that goes beyond the day-to-day existence. And even though we have this idea that there's something bigger than us, Solomon thinks that we should be able to at least enjoy the present. Not a bad philosophy. That's how God has arranged things. That's what he's given us. It's a gift to us. But Solomon is also a realist. And he knows that life on earth can make appreciating what God does. Tell me if this isn't true. Life on earth can make appreciating what God does difficult. It can be a struggle. It can be hard. There are obstacles in the way of seeing that there is something transcendent, something glorious in store for God's people. And it's all about the creation we live in and the creation that's coming. So we're going to look at two of those obstacles today in our passage. We're going to see a wicked world in chapter 3, 15 through 21, and we're going to see an oppressed world in chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. This is Catching the Wind, part 4. I hope you're getting drift about catching the wind so far, because Solomon's out to do something that's impossible to do. He's trying to make sense of a world that he lives in without God. It's like trying to catch the wind. So let's take a look at this wicked world. In verses 14 and 15, Solomon says that God is supreme over time. We can't change what he's done. We don't know what he's going to do. And sometimes we're not even aware of what he's doing. So keeping in mind that Solomon is struggling in his relationship with his father in heaven, You can almost hear the frustration in his claims. And he continues in verse 16. Moreover, I saw that the sun in the place of justice, under the sun, that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. Solomon sees the reality of the courts, he sees the reality of the government. See if you can draw some parallels here. In the one place where you expect to find justice, it is lacking. It is sadly lacking. That's true in Solomon's time. We could see it all laid out right here. Is it true today? Do we ever see fast talking lawyers getting criminals off free? Do we ever see people? distorting and using the laws to accomplish their own goals and achieve their own desires? Do we ever see judges who are supposed to act with integrity and fail to do so? And even more frequently, do we ever see a judicial system that acts with bias, reinterprets the law to accommodate the culture and the influence of the culture? Let me tell you something. The Supreme Court of the United States did something historic in 1972 because that is a body that was, was made to interpret the law. They wrote it. They changed the law. That's not what they're called to do. We've been living with the aftermath of that since 1972 when they legalized abortion. Roe versus Wade. Not what the Supreme Court's supposed to do. This is what Solomon's talking about. I'm not trying to tell you that all judges and all lawyers are crooked. They're not. There are a lot of good and honest ones. But we should recognize that our legal systems all over the world are administrated by human beings. And they're just as flawed. They're just as capable of making wrong decisions as you and I are we can't depend on them. Justice has become a byword of our time, used by people that intend to pervert it, to accomplish their own goals. And, and the term social justice is neither social nor just. Just look at what's happening around you. Social justice has become a rallying call for those who are angry at people who have money for not giving it away. Just my opinion. The term social justice become a cry for those who say they want equal rights, but in reality, want to elevate themselves and condemn those who don't agree with them. Want equal rights for me, but not for you. They demand tolerance, and all the while, they're refusing to tolerate the people that don't agree with them. It's our world today. And the same thing's true of some of the religious establishments that we see. It was happening in Solomon's time. Solomon says the justice system is in bad in his day, but, but the, the, the people of God are even worse He sees unrighteousness in a place where it should be. And, and, you know, we see it in Scripture. We see Aaron's sons paying a terrible price for disobedience, offering unauthorized fire in Leviticus 10. And in 1 Samuel 8, we see Samuel's sons taking advantage of God's people. Oh, that would never happen today. So we open up the news and we see... Pastors and priests and leaders of ministries doing awful and ungodly things to members of God's family. As we watch certain celebrity pastors living in mansions and flying around in private jets while every week they go on to the TV or the radio and ask you for more money. Solomon says in verse 17, I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. And and that's true. He's got a hold of something that's true and actually beautiful. But Solomon doesn't seem to take any comfort in this. We should. What it says is the one true God will bring justice to everybody. We don't have to fret over this. And the measure of that justice will be purity and holiness, not man's opinions. It'll be perfectly just, untainted by human desire, untainted by greed, untainted by bias. And I think think even as Solomon writes this, maybe, maybe he's struggling some pangs of consciousness here. Knowing that God is going to judge him as well as everyone else. And in the meantime, he ponders this inevitable truth, verse 18, I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. That's pretty harsh, isn't it? Shouldn't be surprised at this. This type of unjust Self-centered behavior is human nature. We can't escape it. We can't get away from it. And when we find ourselves apart from God, brothers and sisters, we're lost. Driving after the wind. We're so lost that we revert to self-preservation and self-interest. You've heard the saying, it's a dog-eat-dog world. That's kind of what Solomon's saying here. It's a world where those in power want more than anything else. Please keep this in mind. Those in power want more than anything else to stay there. Oh, they're acting in my interest. No, they're not. They want to hold on to it. Again, it's human nature. The vast majority of the people in authority would sooner sacrifice you than themselves. Is this uplifting yet? Are we encouraged yet? We live in a world of deception and danger and debauchery. Certainly not everyone is like this, but the ones that are not are the exception rather than the rule. And this Solomon has right. And, and to what end? Verse 19, for what happens to the children of men, and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath. And man has no advantage over the beast for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust and the dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth i got to tell you something. I'm glad this is wisdom literature. I'm glad that this is not a promise from God. I'm glad that this gives us street smarts and gives us a practical way to deal with the world that we live in. Because this describes a world, a life with no hope, Uh, a world where human beings are really no different than animals. Solomon says... you know you're born you work your fingers to the bone and then you die none of it matters he says and he reconciles everything with this little tidbit verse 22 so i saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work for that is his lot who can bring him to see what will be after him yeah solomon says well well at least a man should be able to enjoy his work right to be able to get some satisfaction out of it because he doesn't know what comes after. All it can really count on is what he has right here, right now. And that, brothers and sisters, sums up the wickedness of the world that we exist in. If there is nothing more, if there is nothing transcendent, we might as well enjoy ourselves in the moment that we exist. There are wicked people everywhere, And if there's no guarantee of anything, we're consigned to nothing more than the few short years that we exist. I can't imagine anything more hopeless. I can't imagine anything more empty. But we still, even even in these words that Solomon is struggling with, we see this hint that maybe he's not so far from God that he's become unaware of God's existence. He acknowledges God's existence, but he claims that there are no answers to the dilemmas in life. Do you see what happened? This man spoke with God. He was given his throne by God. Brothers are trying to kill him, The kingdom's divided, and God delivers Solomon into the throne. And not only makes him sit on the throne, but he gives him the riches of the entire world. He had the respect of everybody. And look where he's gotten. You know what happened? Solomon has been seduced. He was tempted to move away. He was tempted by the temptations of a fallen creation. He forgot. So much so that he's lost his eternal perspective. And in losing that, he's lost all meaning and purpose. Just all gone. But he ain't done yet. Let's take a look at the oppressive world that he lives in. Again, I saw all the oppressions. This is uh, chapter 4, verse 1. I saw all the oppressions that were done under the sun. Oppressions under the sun. A reminder that under the sun refers to this horizontal existence we have. There's no acknowledgement of God here. Without regard to our Heavenly Father, we would call this worldly. And I, I want to talk about what the word for oppression means here. Because there's another byword that floats around a lot today. To find out what it means, we could look at Leviticus chapter 6, starting in verse 2. If anyone sins and commits a breach of faith against the Lord by deceiving his neighbor in a matter of deposit or security or through robbery, or if he has oppressed his neighbor or has found something lost and lied about it, swearing falsely, in any of all the things that people do and sin thereby, if he has sinned, and has realized his guilt and will restore what he took by robbery or by what he got by oppression or the deposit that was committed to him or the lost thing that he found or anything about which he has sworn falsely, he shall restore it in full and shall add a fifth to it and give to him whom it belongs on the day he realizes guilt. So what, what it's saying is oppression is taking advantage of people, taking advantage of them. It's taking things that don't belong to you. And, you know, when, first, when we think about that, we think about material things. Well, you can take a lot of things from people that don't belong to you. Their freedom. Their livelihood. Their joy. If we examine Scripture, we find that oppression in the Bible is not necessarily this modern version that we hear about, where those who have are automatically assumed to be oppressing those who have not. Scripturally, oppression is extorting or exploiting someone, cheating or robbing them, or keeping what rightfully belongs to them for yourself. And that certainly happens today. But here's the great irony of that. It doesn't just happen. It's not just the rich people. It's not just the authority who oppress. Everybody's oppressing. We live in this environment where there are haters, brothers and sisters, in every corner, and the ones that hate the most are the ones that shout, "hater" the loudest. Most of them hate their accused oppressors for thinking differently than they do. See, in, in Solomon's time, he sees oppression among men and women, unrighteous treatment. He sees greed and abuse of power, and he also sees the impact that that has on its victims. And behold, the tears of the oppressed. And they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power. And there was no one to comfort them. He sees the victims of oppression suffering. There's no one there to defend them. No one there to protect them. This is so disturbing to Solomon that he thinks in verse 2, the dead who are already dead are more fortunate than the living who are still alive. He said, the dead should be glad they're dead and don't have to watch us. Verse 3, but better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. He said, Actually, it's really been a lot better if they had just never been born. They're going to be born into a world like this. Verse 4, then I saw that all toil, all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This is the problem. A man's envy of his neighbor. All this wickedness, all this oppression comes from people wanting what they don't have. Wanting what God has not given them. Even the people who are working hard under the sun, that's the qualifying phrase here. Even those people who are working hard in this world without God have the same motivation to get what they don't have. This is also vanity and striving after the wind, Solomon says. It's all meaningless, none of it's lasting. So what do we do? How do we cope with this? I mean, we are a people who are supposed to have hope. We're people who are supposed to be encouraged. We're supposed to be nourished by this. How do we handle this? Well, if we don't have the Lord, there aren't any options. If you don't have the Lord, there's no way to deal with this. Solomon still, he tries to come up with something, and he does this by using some imagery. We got, we got the imagery of three types of hands here. Verse 5, the fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. We're not talking about cannibalism here, okay? A man with folded hands can't do any work. He can't, he can't produce anything. He can't make any crops. He can't do any crafts. His hands are folded, and they're unable to sustain him. And what Solomon is saying, well, you know, one thing we can do is we can refuse to work, but the result of that is you're going to have nothing to eat, and eventually you're going to consume yourself. You're just going to waste away. So we don't have the option of not working. And, you know, it's not the only place in Scripture we see this. In Proverbs chapter 6, it says, A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. So the first image of hands shows us that no work leads to poverty and perhaps even death. Then we have another image of hands. Better is a handful of quietness. What does this mean? There's a little bit of an idiom here, okay? But these are hands that are either empty or nearly empty. They, They don't avoid work, but they're quiet. Work is not their primary goal. It's not their reason for existence. Acquiring things is not their focus in life. And Solomon says, that's better than his third image of hands. Look at this. than two hands full of toil and striving after the wind. These third hands are are overflowing with material things. They've got the product of their toil with them. They work hard to acquire. They work hard to amass things. They work hard to get stuff. And it's all empty and meaningless. So the world is oppressive, populated with oppressors. And if we allow ourselves to get caught up in worldly matters, we find ourselves trying to catch the wind. Brothers and sisters, if I could give you anything for 2024, it would be be careful that you're not trying to catch the wind. It would be... Be careful that you're not using all of your resources to make sure the right guy gets in office. He lives in the same wicked world that we do. Let me make this clear. I'm not saying don't vote. I vote. I work at the polls. But I've said it before. And, and this advice is, is valid this year? as it will ever be in our lives. You need to vote with your ballot in one hand and your Bible in the other. Which of these two candidates is godly? Neither. Neither. We need to figure out which one's the best politician. And have a discussion with that over lunch. Solomon responds to this wickedness and this oppression. His response is to spend our time providing for ourselves, he says. But he's careful to say not to make that work the focus of your life, not to make it an accumulating thing. And this tidbit of worldly wisdom, again, we have to take it in context, comes from a man that amassed probably the greatest fortune the world has ever seen. He was the richest man in the world then, and if you, if you try to extrapolate, it, it, he, he had so much money and so many materials, they couldn't count it all. So he would probably be the richest man in the world today. He did it all, and near the end of his life, he says it's all vanity, it's all trying to catch the wind, but to be careful where we put our values and where we put our resources and where we put our efforts. So we see these two obstacles the wicked world. We live in a fallen world. Yes, we all know that. It's been this way for over 6,000 years. Solomon saw it, but he lost his godly perspective. Now, keep in mind that this story, our original narrator, is taking Solomon's teachings and warning a young generation of up-and-coming leaders and prosperous men and women of surrendering to the temptations of the world. Don't get seduced by this stuff. It's very exciting. There's a lot of money floating around. There's power all over the place. If you line yourself up with the right people, then you can enjoy those things and that power as well. That's what happened to Solomon. He lined himself up with the wrong people. He was saying to his students, there's bad folks everywhere. Your struggle will be that the power, wealth, and influence they enjoy will look good. It's not going to look evil. It's going to look fantastic. And that's exactly what happened to the greatest king that Israel ever had. The wisest, richest man in the world. And in gaining all that, he lost his relationship with his father, and the teacher says to us today, don't let that happen to you. And we saw the oppressed world. And again, oppression has become a byword. It was true in the fourth century of Palestine as well. Human beings are oppressive, except today, many of the oppressors quickly accuse others as being oppressive. Many folks today assume that if you have money or influence, that you're oppressing people. Isn't isn't that what's happening over at Israel right now? I mean, these people come out of their community and attack innocent women and children and take 300 hostages... That were at a music festival and dragged them back in the community and all of a sudden Israel is oppressing them. We're living in a crazy world. Nobody looks at it and goes, Well, why did they attack them? Oh, they attacked them because they've been oppressed for so long. I'm so angry that I'm going to kill you. Well, that's scriptural. It's all over the headlines. Oppressors, we see small groups of people swaying politicians and courts to act on their behalf and to give them what they want. You know what? The majority doesn't get off scot-free either, though. Many of them are indeed oppressors. Why is that? Well, because most of them live in a godless existence, and their goal is to accumulate more of whatever they got. This is the world that Solomon lived in. And this is the world that we live in. And that world will rob you of your joy. If we ponder this for too long, we allow ourselves to be consumed with the news and with the media, current events, we can end up feeling as hopeless as Solomon, frustrated by everything that we see going on around us, overwhelmed by wickedness, and oppression, angry about what we see, and all the while drifting away from the only hope that the world has. Jesus died so that you and I wouldn't have to live in a wicked world forever. His promises that he's prepared a place for us, and that after we have been good witnesses of his love and grace and mercy here in this world, he will come and take us back to that place where there is no wickedness, where there is no oppression, where there's no sin, no disease, and boundless joy. That's the promise we have. That's the promise that Solomon lost his grip on. Let's don't lose our. Let's keep our focus on the one who brings the promise, the one who is faithful and true, the one who is not an oppressor, who is not wicked. And let's put our faith and trust in him. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for the promise of purity, for the promise of holiness, for the promise of a world where there is peace and harmony. And, Lord, we long for that world. Oh, my heart breaks for it. I say, Lord, come quickly. But in the meantime, Father, strengthen me that I might stand for hope, that I might stand for peace, that I might stand against anger and oppression and wickedness, Father, and be a vessel of your mercy and grace. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Thank you for tuning in. Those of you that joined us online uh, next week, we'll pick up right where we're left off and have some more exciting news about Ecclesiastes. Nice. We're going to do a responsive reading. All right, thank you. <laughs> Alan, bring up the responsive reading. Brother John, thank you so much for the hope that we have Living in a horizontal world with a God who is vertical. Our responsive reading this morning is going to be Psalm 18:1 through3. I'll read "The Black." You guys read "The." Thank you for paying attention. "I love you. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer." I call upon the Lord, who is worthy to be praised. Amen and amen. Be blessed. And below that little thumbs up, If you're listening on Sermon Audio, perhaps you can comment or even share the sermon with someone else. We'd love to hear from you. We're on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter at WBFVA. We're on the World Wide Web at WBFVA.org. Let us know if you'd like us to pray for you. If you'd like to support us financially, you can make donations through our website at WBFVA.org. Just click on Giving. You'll receive a tax-deductible receipt at the end of the year. Either way, we would love to hear from you or even have you visit us in person one Sunday. We meet at 46 Winchester Street in downtown Warrington, Virginia at 11 o'clock every Sunday morning. And now, may God bless you richly until we gather again.